Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name is Adam, and I'm the campus pastor here at our Corona campus. And uh, today, we are going to jumpstart this brand new series called First Comes Love. And uh, I couldn't be more excited about this. Um, But before I get into the message today, um, I do want to just give you a little bit of a a, a forewarning, okay? So if you get to the end and you're like, that was was too much, uh, I warned you now, okay? You had a chance to get out, okay? So I'm just going to delete that email when it comes in. Um, And the warning I want to give you is that this is going to be very uh, PG-13. Maybe I showed my wife my notes. She's like, maybe bordering on R. And so uh, it's going to creep up there. And uh, we're going to really talk a lot about um, physical intimacy today. And uh, those are not the words I'm going to couch it in later. And so if you have a kid that you haven't had certain conversations with or talked to certain things about and you're just like, wow, I, I don't want this to be a, a weird surprise for them. Um, this is a good chance to tech, check them into the kids' ministry or step out or take them for donuts, whatever you want to do, um, because we're going to get into it today. And uh, part of the reason why we are even diving into this series in the way we're going to do it at all is because we really do believe that the church ought to be a place where you can talk about anything openly and honestly, that you can actually explore things and and be vulnerable and get help with things and uh, and just talk about things very plainly. And so I'm not going to sort of tiptoe around what I'm going to talk about or what I want to say. I'm just going to say the things that I want to say and uh, the things I feel like God uh, would have me say. And so before we get into any of this stuff today, I just want to give you a forewarning. And uh, I'll also tell you, like when I say PG-13, I have three kids. I have an 11-year-old, a a 13-year-old, and a 15-year-old. And uh, they're all going to be in here today. And I don't think I'm going to say anything that is going to surprise them or catch them off guard, but we may be more open with our kids than you are with yours, and so I just want to give you that warning. So enough said about that. Um, I do want to encourage you to take notes today. Um, If ever you were going to take notes, this would be the day. Uh, Write down some things that stand out to you that are interesting, helpful, and uh, if you are taking notes, the title of my message is Doing It. (laughs) Doing It. Listen, guys, if we can't get past the title, we're not going to make it through, the, through this series. Oh, man. Uh, one thing that um, I've noticed about kids, you know, maybe you remember this when you were a kid, but um, when you're a kid, every kid is obsessed with and fascinated with like just wanting to be a grown-up, right? It's like everything, I can't wait till I'm grown, I can't wait till I'm a grown-up, because in your mind when you're a kid... Uh, being a grown-up represents freedom, right? You can actually get out from behind all the rules and expectations and oppression of your mean parents, and you can finally do whatever you want to do. And this is why every kid at some point you know, has certain rants that they will go on about all the things they're going to do when they're grown up. They'll, they'll say things like, when I'm grown up, I'm going to stay up as late as I want to, okay? I'm going to play video games all day long. I'm going to eat ice cream at every single meal, okay? And some of you just realized, as I told you those rants, you're like, I might still be a child. These are the things I want to do. 
as well. Um, and the reason why we want to do all these things, because these are the things that are generally sort of governed with some sort of, of boundaries or rules from the people who take care of us, most likely our parents. But in our minds as kids, we have this assumption that if something is good, it would be even better without boundaries. I mean, can you imagine how delicious ice cream is if you just had a ton of it, right? If video games are this great, what if you just OD'd on them? You know what I mean? You just think, man, that would be what it's about. And then what happens to all of us, right? We grow up and maybe you just observe this. Maybe you have firsthand experience or run experiments on it and you realize, man, if you don't go to bed on time, you don't get enough sleep, uh, you do not feel good and you are not energized to take on the day. You realize like, man, if you just play video games all day, uh, you're gonna be in trouble because you got bills to pay. And um, except for like, like five people on YouTube, okay, and Twitch, most people are not paying their bills that way, right? You realize that if you eat ice cream at every single meal, uh, you start to feel gross and you get fat and you end up with diabetes and then they have to take your feet off. It's, it's a downhill slope, you guys. It's not pleasant. And the reason why these things sort of are a surprise to us, right? The reason why, like, even if you were an eight-year-old hearing this, you would be like, I hear what you're saying, but I don't believe you because it's hard to wrap your mind that those things could be true because all these things are awesome and everybody knows it right? Like, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just mean parents who are trying to ruin your enjoyment in life that place limits on these things. And you can't imagine that, you know, your plan to do all the good things would ever backfire. And part of the reason why you can't recognize it is because, like, the advertising for all these things sort of leaves that part out, the downside of what might happen if you take these things too far, and I would argue that nothing in our culture has better PR than sex. I mean, it is everywhere. It works its way into our movies, music, magazines. There's ads, apps, there's products, potions, lotions, little blue pills. Um, so many different ways that we can gain access to stuff. And you could look around at how sort of the everywhereness of sex, and you could assume, man, I think everybody else is having a ton of mind-blowing sex all the time. And I can't wait to be a grown-up because, man, they are really having all the fun. But in reality, research actually reveals that very few of us are having much sex or enjoying it when we do. Now, this may sound crazy or far-fetched to you based on how much this is just everywhere and in your face, but um, all, I've noticed that all last year, even before I started doing research for this series, I kept getting um, these, these different uh, things popping up on my newsfeed, these articles, these research studies that were just echoing this idea. There's one that popped up um, mid-year last year that the big title was, Americans are having a lot less sex than they ever have before, and researchers want to know why. And the piece goes on to say that whether you are married or single, old or young, that this trend proves to be true across the board. And it's baffling to people who research human sexuality. They're trying to figure it out. And yet, as bizarre as that sounds, it does sort of track with a lot of the conversations that I've had with real people. Like the, the middle-aged couple that came in for counseling because they were fighting all the time. And in the course of the conversation, I asked, what is your sex life like? And she said, I, I can't even remember the last time we had sex, which is like, oof. 
And then he immediately said, it was four years, three months, and 16 days ago. And I was like, oh, just, so just off the top of your head then, like you're just spitballing. He didn't even check his phone, like to look at the date. I was like, this dude is dialed. There was like a disheartening nature to it, right? Or um, this 22-year-old uh, newlywed who called me, this would have been um, a year and a half or so ago, who called me and said, man, I, I just married the woman of my dreams, and she is hot. I mean, but, you know, I, I still can't stop watching porn, and there are times where she is right in front of me, and she's naked, and the moment that I've been dreaming my whole life about is here, and I can't get my body to cooperate, and she thinks it's her fault, and I don't know what to do. And my heart just broke for him. Or the, the woman who, after years of, several years of marriage, told my wife, she asked her, she's like, what does an orgasm feel like? Because I don't know if I've actually had one. And um, I was relieved to discover my wife does know the answer to that question. <laughs> she was able to give some help. And she was like, well, I mean, I've read that I, no, I'm just kidding. But I think like when we, when we bump into stories like this, we, we can start to wonder like, is everybody disillusioned? Like how can so many different types of people be so sexually dissatisfied? And, and, it's, and it's people who really like bridge the spectrum. I, I remember like, you know, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian bubble and I was led to believe that there were really only two mindsets when it came to sex. There were people who were obsessed who were just like, you know what, it's just, it's just physical, just do whatever you want, have fun, like go out there, hook up with as many people as you possibly can, you're only young once, just do whatever. And then there were like people who were repressed, right? Who, who just sort of thought like it is dirty and sinful and gross, it's mostly for making babies. And if you think about it a lot or you, know, you, you like it too much, there's probably something wrong with you. But I would tell you this, just as a pastor working with a lot of people who share with me what's going on in their real lives, like, I just know so many people in both categories who are not fulfilled sexually. And I just can't help but wonder, like, what are we missing? And to answer this question, I want to just back up to the beginning. And uh, I, I'm, like, as beginning as you can get, right? The creation of everything, and uh, in the book of Genesis, when God actually introduces sex to the human story, it happens very quickly, right away. And it's only positive, right? Like, in fact, it is one of the first things that God tells people to do together. He creates a man and a woman and almost instantly is like, you guys should go have sex. I mean, technically he says, be fruitful and multiply, but there's not a whole lot of ways to do that. Just mostly the, the, the sex way is the way that you do it. And I think the thing that is interesting to me about this is that God can do anything. Like, he could have made sex purely functional, but he doesn't. Instead, he makes it fun. What an interesting, what an interesting choice. Like, all sorts of animals uh, procreate and, and recreate in, in all sorts of really unsexy ways. Like, God could have made us to do it any way he wanted to. Like, he could have made us to lay eggs. 
you know, to do like some sort of a weird secret handshake to, to have kids, but he doesn't because he wants us to enjoy intimacy. And just so that we're not confused about what it means to enjoy intimacy, God then goes ahead and puts a lot of erotic poetry in the Bible just to clear things up. And some of you think I'm making this up, so I'm just going to read you some excerpts. Song of Solomon. Wow, some, some fans out there. A few people that are like, I don't read my Bible often, but a lot of highlights and underlines in the old Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter four, verse one. This is um, a guy who's talking about his new bride. And he says this, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves beyond your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. It gets better as he goes. I mean, like sometimes <laughs> as a guy where you're trying to, and you got to get warmed up. You know, you're not in that, like the groove yet. But he does get better. He slowly, um, as you do, he slowly works his way downward, right? He starts with the hair with the flock of goats, and then he just starts like going down, and he starts getting more descriptive as he lowers his gaze, probably with some R&B music playing in the background. I can only imagine... And he's like, he talks about her teeth and her smile and her lips and her neck. And then he gets to this part, uh, verse five. He says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Verse 10, your love delights me. It's better than fine wine. Your lips are as sweet as nectar. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates. So, you know what? That's a good place to stop. That's a good place. You guys, you guys get where it's going. Um, like I said, my kids are in here. Um, and I mean, if you, if you think that it's starting to get blushworthy, like it only gets more so. Like it goes on um, to have each of them in great detail describe a lot of things that they would like to do to and with each other. And uh, again, they're wrapped in a lot more blushworthy metaphors. And the thing that I want to just draw your attention to that maybe you've not thought about before is that God is not surprised that this is in here. He put it here. Like, think about that for just a minute. In fact, in most English translations that we, that we currently have, because the Bible's not written in English, and these sections are written in Hebrew, like the, the ancient language of the Jews, most English translations sort of tamp down and gloss over what's actually being said because it is embarrassing. I mean, the, the Hebrew is, I mean, it's practically pornographic, just to be real with you. And so it brings up a really big question, why would God, who is holy, put a sex scene in the middle of the Bible between two married people? Seems like an interesting choice. Because he wants us to see how exciting and thrilling he created it to be. It's also what is very interesting to me. Um, if you go on and you read the whole thing, and, and um, I highly recommend that, that you do, you would notice that like throughout this, this piece of poetry, the dominant voice is the woman's voice. 
which is interesting. Like, she's the one who is the most, between the two of them, who is seeking and pursuing and initiating most of the time. She's not ashamed to admit that she is interested in sex. She's not shy to describe exactly what she wants. She talks openly about what parts of her lover's body excite her. I mean, that sounds progressive now. Think about how forward-thinking this would have been when it was originally written thousands of years ago. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking like, wow, this is what I'm talking about. This service is going the way I was hoping when someone invited me for the first time. I like this church. Like we should just, I think we should just go. I mean, God is on board. He's a fan. I think we should just all go out and just have sex whenever and with whoever we want to, because this is what we do as people, right? Like we never fully grow up. We always assume if something's good, it would be so much better without boundaries. And we're not the first people to think like this. In fact, if we flash back to the time period in which the New Testament came about and uh, which the first church sort of got off the ground, uh, we arrive at the Greco-Roman Empire, and sex was a big deal to these people. In fact, um, the Apostle Paul, who's credited with having written the majority of the New Testament, he plants one of the first Christian churches in a city known for a huge temple built to honor Aphrodite who's the goddess of sex and sexuality. And as part of the way this temple worked, it was stacked with over a thousand prostitutes. And people would travel from all over to worship with one of these prostitutes, aka have a one-night stand with a complete stranger. Sound familiar? And, And this city is right up the road from Athens, which is the birthplace of something called dualism, which is the idea that Um, the physical and the spiritual are completely separate, that your body has nothing to do with your spirit and your soul. So sex is just a physical act. It's just a basic animalistic urge. It doesn't matter. Like when you get hungry, you eat. When you get horny, you go to a prostitute. That's how it works. What's the big deal? It's just sex. And this is sort of the, the, the average thinking of people in this culture when the very first Christian church gets off the ground. And Paul, who's trying to pastor these people, gets just really blunt and just real talk with them about sort of counteracting these ideas. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He says, don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? Now, this is interesting. Maybe you caught this. He starts with, don't you realize? You know why he says that? They did not realize. (laughs) Which gives you an idea of the types of people that go to this church, right? The types of people who came to church, and one day, Paul, the preacher, gets up, and he's like, don't you realize that you you guys probably shouldn't be having sex with prostitutes? It's not good for you. And they're like, really? This this guy's interesting. I didn't even thought about that before. Wow, I guess I'm going to have to, it's not a good idea to have sex with a prostitute. I guess I'm going to have to talk to my buddies about that. Did you guys, had you guys ever thought about that before? That's a new idea to me. And Paul is trying to get these people to understand who have sort of been um, lived and grown up in a culture that sort of conditions them to think the opposite of this. He's trying to get them to understand that your body and your spirit are intertwined that what you do with one affects the other. And while this may sound like sort of an out there biblical concept, it also kind of makes sense. If you, if you take a minute and just think about it, 
it, it makes sense that this is true. I mean, if sex was just something physical, then we wouldn't all know somebody in our lives who struggles to enjoy sex with somebody that they really love because of something that happened to them when they were younger. I mean, if this were true, if it was just a physical thing, it didn't really matter, then we, we wouldn't get so enraged when someone cheats. We wouldn't feel sick with regret over things that we did or let somebody do to us. And we wouldn't feel this way because it wouldn't matter. It would just be something that happened to your body that didn't have anything to do with your spirit or your soul. But it's not. Something else is going on. And in fact, Jesus talks about why. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, this is Jesus talking. He says, the, the scriptures record that from the beginning, God made the male and female. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And you probably heard this, you know, read it weddings or something to that effect. But essentially what he's referencing, he's talking about Adam and Eve, these, these two sort of prototype humans, they have sex and they become one flesh. It's this word ihad in Hebrew. And when you couple it with the word for flesh, you have this phrase that means fused together at the deepest levels. Like he's describing like this sort of moment when, you know, two bodies sort of blur into one another when you are wrapped up and intertwined with another person, when you feel fully seen and known at the core of your being. In fact, the, the euphemism for sex throughout most of Scripture is to know, like he knew her. They knew each other. It's this intimate connection that scripturally we're told over and over again is oddly irreversible. Now, that may sound kind of mystical, but, but now based on what we know about uh, neuroscience and how the brain and brain chemicals work, it's not just something that is mystical, it's enormously biological. And what I mean by this is that there are a lot of chemicals that flood your brain when you have sex. And I want to just give you a, a few of them and what they actually do, how they impact you. Because I think that these things are sort of the scientific reference to what Scripture is talking about here. There's, uh, for instance, dopamine, which is like a, a feel-good chemical that amplifies a sense of euphoric pleasure, and it makes you want to go back and do whatever it was that triggered that feeling, okay? Oftentimes, dopamine is referred to as the addiction chemical because you get such a high off of whatever it is you're doing. You're like, yes, please, more. Let's go. Yeah, again, again, again. And it builds up cravings that be can become really powerful, there's a chemical called oxytocin that um, floods a brain, primarily a woman's brain during sex. It's a bonding chemical that emotionally agglues you to and also suppresses criticism of your partner. And some of you are like, that is another great reason just to have sex. Like, <laughs> this is part of the reason, oxytocin flooding a woman's brain during sex is part of the reason why people say love is blind. Because to a certain extent, Part of your brain is being tamped down. That's just like, he's dumb. He doesn't have a job. He's stupid. Why are you with? And she's just like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we got a connection, right? And it's brain chemicals. 
And then there's vasopressin, which is uh, a bonding chemical that's primarily released in men. And um, it spikes your emotional connection to and your protective impulses towards your partner. So this is the part of the, 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 uh, the thing that floods your brain that makes you um, be like, I love you and you're my person and I got to look out for you and I got to look out for our kids. And like, well, I, I saw you talking to somebody. What's going on over there, right? Um, another weird side effect that it has is uh, immediately when, when um, it floods your brain after sex, it also makes you sleepy. So um, some of you are like, I can, I can testify. I know about that. But I tell you all this because essentially what all this is saying, both the science and the scriptures on this topic, is that when you have sex with someone, it physically and spiritually bonds you, which means that sex is way too powerful to treat so casual because it's not just a momentary mingling of bodies, it's a melding of souls. And it becomes tough to break apart two people that have had sex, especially the more sex they've had, because they were never meant to be broken apart. That was meant to bond them together. And I think when we begin to <clears throat> look at this intention and understand sort of what is really going on, I think it brings clarity to the fact that God puts boundaries on pleasure, not to ruin it, but to heighten it. Because God does not want us having this sort of connection that is connected and then depleted and then this longing for someone who doesn't want us and we don't know why we're connected to them and why we want to be with them even though it doesn't make logical sense but we feel drawn to them and we have this connection and we don't know how to break it apart because it's just supposed to be a night or a hookup. It's just supposed to be, you know, a friend with some benefits and because of this, uh, Scripture just continues to talk a lot about why it's really important to only have sex with the person that you plan on being with forever. I'll just give you an example. This is Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 through 17, an ancient wisdom writer who says this. These Proverbs people, they love their metaphors. You guys can figure out what they're saying, though. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. This is sort of a, a proper poetic Bible way of saying, like, if you're not married to them, keep it in your pants, buddy, okay? <laughs> just the ancient grandfather of wisdom letting you know that. But then it goes on, Right? It's not just a warning, but there's something else to it. Verse 18 says this, let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She's a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Wow. Some of you are like, man, the Bible talks a lot more about breasts than I was anticipating. <laughs> So far, it's two, two verses there. But I don't want to skip over this. I think we should try and break down every word that's being used here because I think there's a lot of wisdom packed into this. This is this last little sentence. Let. Make it happen. Pursue it. Strive for this. Like work towards this end goal. So let what? 
her breasts, right? So this is like, could be written to a man or woman, but he's saying like, essentially your spouse's body, especially the sexy bits. Obviously this guy's kind of tipping his hand. He's got a few favorites. You know, he's not just all about that bass. He likes <laughs> other things too. And then so it says, let her breasts satisfy. In other words, excite, enrapture, thrill, and fulfill you. Um, and then he says, you, like you and nobody else. Like you're the only person supposed to be getting these thrills from those breasts, just FYI. And then how like, long are you supposed to do this? Always, till death do you part. In other words, God wants regular sex to be an ongoing part of your marriage. Regular meaning consistent, right? Um, this is a question I know somebody's going to have. What do you mean by regular? Um, no. <laughs> consistent, okay? I'm not talking about lack of creativity. I'm just talking about on a consistent basis. And this is why it, it says in the New Testament, again, Paul gets really blunt about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, he says, Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. But then afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's like, I've met you people. It's <laughs> no self-control. And I think this is interesting, right? He's basically saying, like, listen, if you're married, just letting you know you got two options, okay? Having consistent sex or going to prayer meetings. These are your two choices. Okay, so, you know, pick a lane. In other words, like, I I've seen you around about, and uh, you weren't at a prayer meeting. So, um, what are you doing with your spare time? What, like, that's how big of a deal it is. And why is it that big of a deal? Partially because um, regular sex is a real need that you signed up to meet for your spouse. Like, it, it is, like, when you are exchanging the vows, you're just like, I know you got needs. I'm here for you, right? Forever. Forever, right? And this body's going to change. Let's get weird together. It's going to wrinkle and sag, and things are going to flop and move around. Our light's dim. We're good. I'm going to take care of you. You need to prioritize serving each other in this way. And notice, this is also so interesting to me because it's so counter to what I grew up thinking. Notice who it says doesn't want you having a lot of sex. Satan! I grew up thinking that like Satan was the one trying to get you to have sex and God was like, whoa, we don't say that word around here. Meanwhile, according to pretty much all of scripture, God is just like, you guys should do it. <laughs> and Satan's like, don't do it. What? Why? Like what would Satan get out of you not having sex with your spouse? That's a good question. And I think uh, a big part of the reason is because regular sex insulates your relationship from arguments and affairs. Meaning this, you are made to crave sex. And so if you are married and you're not getting it there, one of you is eventually gonna look elsewhere. 
And that temptation is going to be a lot for that person. And if they act on it, it will devastate your relationship. And some of you, I don't have to tell you that. You already know how it feels. I think the other, the other part to this is that when you are in a relationship that is intentionally created to be bonded through sex and you are not having it, that creates a lot of tension. And sexual frustration ends up becoming personal frustration. And you start to lash out, right? Like everything they do is annoying to you. Their voice, their habits, their dumb jokes, everything they ask you to do just feels so stupid and annoying. We've all seen these movies, right, where somebody is acting all angry and grouchy and uptight, and there's like someone who, when they're walking by, they're like, oh, she needs to get laid. <laughs> and all through the Bible, I mean, God is like, yeah, sometimes. sometimes yeah, that's, sometimes that's exactly what it is. But here's the thing. You know, despite how much we wish we were, you know, we're not always, those of us who are married, we're not always in this season of, of either having great sex or just praying all the time, right? And, and you're not crazy if that's not where you are right now because everybody is able to find themselves in these moments, including the ultimate romantic couple, the one we were just reading this poetry from in the book, of Song of Solomon. When you skip to the, the last chapter, chapter eight, and you read the last bit of the book, you get a picture of a different season for them that in a lot of ways is heartbreaking. It's written sort of like this poetic play, almost like, um, like the Iliad, where it's, it's written in poetic form, but there are different voices and characters. And um, the young woman is talking in verse 11, and she says this, Solomon has a vineyard in Baal Hamon, which he leases out to tenant farmers. Each of them pays a thousand pieces of silver for harvesting its fruit. But my vineyard is mine to give, and Solomon need not pay a thousand pieces of silver. But I will give 200 pieces to those who care for its vines. So just to decode some of this, the honeymoon is over. At this point in the relationship, they've aged, their lives have evolved and expanded. He's away on a work trip. He's making money. He's trying to prove his worth. He's trying to build a business. And some scholars actually think in addition to that, what she's actually saying here is that she knows that he's not always faithful when he's away for work. And that she's also insinuating that what she believes that she's got and can do is way better than whatever he's getting out there. Because she's being vulnerable and confident at the same time. And the reply is this. This is a young man talking, verse 13. Oh, my darling, lingering in the gardens, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. And the young woman replies, come away, my love. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And some of you are like, I don't think we're talking about gazelles, stags, mountains, or spices here. That might be a metaphor for something. And I just want to translate this. Essentially what he's saying is she is talking to him from a distance. He's in a different location. And, and like when she says what she says originally, he's like, I forgot how fun and sassy you are. Like whoever's hanging out with you is lucky. And then she says, it could be you. Why don't you come home and I'll show you what you're missing. 
AKA twin fonts. I got a whole mountain of spices with your name on it. And then here, here's, the, here's the crazy part. This is the end of the book. That's it. The story just ends abruptly. And we don't get to know what happens. Like, we don't know if he comes home. We don't know if they get back together. We don't know if he apologizes. We don't know if they have makeup sex. We don't know if they piece their relationship back together. We don't know if she's able to forgive him for the cheating that he did. We don't know if they break up. We don't know if they never talk again. We don't know anything. And for some of you, this is the part of the poem you most relate to. Because your story feels like it's in the same place. And you find yourself wondering the same things. What's going to happen? It's not like it used to be. Something is gone. Something's lost. And I got to tell you, until you put that awkward, honest conversation in motion, you'll never know. But you need to. Both of you do. Until you say, like the woman in this story, I miss us. What happened? It was so great, wasn't it? We fell in, I know we were young and we were kids and it was like a long time ago, but like, it was great. And we've been through a lot. But I still love you. What happened? And more importantly, what are we going to do about it? Because I still love you. I still want you. I want to know that you want me too. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Come home. I will tell you this. God does not want you to live your life just eking out trying to like accrue anniversaries with a person that you feel like you don't even know anymore. It's not that God wants you to walk away. It's that God wants you and wants to help you put things back together again. And I'm telling you guys, I've seen it happen for people that you would say it, 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 they're never going to get it together. You can't come back from that. I've seen it happen. I've seen God heal people that you just thought could never, ever be healed. You end up with a relationship that other people envy who could write their own poetry, but they would have to wait till their kids died to publish it because it would be just too <laughs> embarrassing for everyone involved. But I, I want to float out a question to you as your, as your homework, and it's this, and whether you're single or married or whatever your, your status is, I think this is a good question for you to ask yourself. Is sex something that I need to deprioritize or reprioritize in this season to put it in its proper place? Is sex something I need to deprioritize or reprioritize in this season to put it in its proper place? And this is going to mean different things for different ones of us. For some of us, it may mean, you know, like your schedule is in the way. You're doing too much stuff. And you need to make time for each other. And it's going to mean, you know, scheduling date nights and getaways. 
For others of you, it is going to mean like throwing away the, the, the ratty pajamas and just buy some new bras, okay? Okay, the, 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 that nursing bra has lived its life, okay? With the trap door and the baby puke. You haven't been nursing for four years. Like, upgrade. Get your girl to take you. I'm just, I'm trying to help you. I care about your life. For some of you, it, it may mean going to therapy and finally starting to unpack what happened to you. Because it is... It's gone beyond the relationship that it happened in, and now it is, it's, it's trying to wreck this relationship too. And I think it's time for you to put a stop to that and say, no, 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 you don't get to ruin this. For some of you, it may mean admitting um, the effect that pornography has had on you and asking for help because it's, it's out of control. And it's, it's desensitizing you to real people and real interactions and what real sex looks like. For some of you, it may mean like learning more about how your body works and being brave enough to clearly communicate with your partner. Take a note from the song of Solomon Lady. She's just like, this is what's up. It may mean, you know, being more considerate and helpful outside the bedroom so that they're more open to you inside the bedroom. I don't know what it is for you. You know who probably does know what it is for you? The person you're married to. But that's gonna require you to actually talk to them about your intimacy, where it's at, what you like and don't like, what's happened, and where you need to go from here. And I will tell you, it is going to be a tough conversation at first because anything that we have to do to grow gets more difficult before it gets easier. It gets more painful before the pain is relieved. But some things are worth fighting for. And I think intimacy is that thing for you. Here's what I know. God created people to connect and feel connected and loved and known. God wants you to enjoy your life, your body, and your spouse. Don't accept anything less than that. It's not his will. And I want to pray this into your life today. Would you bow your heads across this room? Father, I'm so grateful for the way you made us, um, for the enjoyment that you seek to give us. God, I pray that you would help us to understand the power of our biology, our physiology, that we'd understand the connectedness between our, our body, our soul, and our spirit. And God, I pray that you would help us to steward our sexuality well. God, those of us that need help deprioritizing it during this season of singleness or maybe obsession, that's unhealthy. I pray that you would give us your help and put people around us that can help on your behalf. And God, those of us who need to reprioritize it during this season, um, who've let it fall to the wayside, who've let things get in the way of our intimacy, God, I pray that you would give us the ability, the power, the strength to make it a big deal once again so we can feel connected and bonded in the way we were always meant to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.